You are listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now, here's Pastor Ben Glupker. Through seven, some 30-some uh, sermons on the first seven chapters of Matthew. Then we picked it back up in the summer of 2017 and went through Matthew chapters 8 through 10. This series will take us through Matthew 11 through 13. If you look at chapter 11, verse 1, it says, When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there. Uh, Matthew has an introduction about the birth of Jesus, a conclusion about the death and resurrection of Jesus, and in between there are five big sections, and all of them start after a verse that says, when Jesus had finished something. So if you look over to chapter 13 and verse 53, 13.53 says... And when Jesus had finished these parables. So each section uh, begins after this. So that's, that's why we're doing chapters 11 through 13. That's kind of how the book breaks down. And in this series, I want to consider especially the question that we talked a little bit about earlier. The title of the series is, Are You the One? Are You the One? Let's look again at Matthew chapter 11. I'll just read the first couple verses again as we begin. Matthew 11 verse 1. This is God's word. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Let's pray as we get started. Father, I pray now as we look at your word and as we consider especially directly the life and teaching and ministry of your son Jesus on earth here. Lord, I pray that you would give us clarity, wisdom, and insight by your spirit. Lord, I pray that we would be moved in our hearts and in our souls to see Jesus as glorious and good and worthy of being trusted, worthy of being followed, worthy of being submitted to, worthy of entrusting our very lives and our very eternities to. I pray that we would, at the end of this series, be even more clear in our minds and hearts that Jesus is the one. I pray that you do that for his glory and for our joy in you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, during the primary season of February 2008 on Super Tuesday, then-candidate Barack Obama famously said in a speech in Chicago, we are the ones that we've been waiting for. He said, we are the ones that we've been waiting for. And his opponents, of course, rolled their eyes and moaned about his Messiah complex. His supporters cheered and rallied to his call to take action and be themselves agents of change. As I 
read that, I want to ask the question about the premise itself. Are we waiting for somebody? Are we waiting for somebody? Somebody to come and upset the status quo. Somebody to come who will fix what's wrong. Somebody to come and bring real needed change. Are we waiting for somebody at all? Who would be? Who would be waiting for someone? Well, powerful, wealthy, secure people generally aren't waiting for anything. They already have what they need. Weak, needy, vulnerable people? Well, they might be waiting for someone. Someone to come and fix what's wrong. Someone to come and set things right. Someone to save them. You remember, perhaps, in Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Pevensey children enter into Narnia through the wardrobe, and they encounter Tumnus the fawn, who is startled by them and recognizes immediately that they are sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, that is, they're human. And that's a big deal. Because in Narnia, the white witch is ruled for over a hundred years, imposing a perpetual winter where it's always winter but never Christmas. But there's a prophecy. There's a prophecy that someday the four thrones at the castle Care Paravel will be occupied by four sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And, and when that day comes, when they come and sit on those thrones, evil and bad will be banished and the good will be restored. So all the good creatures of Narnia are waiting for that day. When will they come and set things right? You know, the people in Israel in Jesus' day were waiting too. It wasn't always winter, but times were hard. They lived under Roman oppression and rule. They were not free, and they weren't anything close to the glorious life and experience that had been promised to their ancestors centuries before. They had prophecies too. Prophecies of a coming time when God would return. When a king would come to fix what's broken and restore what had been lost and establish them in security and prosperity and freedom forever. They had prophecies too that that king would come. He would be God's anointed one. In Greek, that word is Christos, Christ. In Hebrew, it's Mashiach, Messiah. They had prophecies too. When will he come? Now, the Old Testament scriptures articulated in different and various ways and looked at it from different angles. But the basic message was clear. God's Messiah would return, and God himself, through his Messiah, would rule over his people, restore what is lost, fix what is broken, make things right again. So, here in the book of Matthew, chapter 1, Jesus is born. Then in chapter 3, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. And he begins his ministry in Matthew 4, proclaiming this message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's 
near. It's close. It's not far away. They're waiting for someone. Jesus says it's not far. God's kingdom is at hand. The people are amazed. They're drawn to him by multitudes. His teaching is like nothing they've ever heard before. His life, his miracles, the signs that he performs amaze them and validate who he is. They attest to his power and authority. They're drawn to him, the people are, but already by the time we get to this point in Matthew, we see that the political and religious leaders are not impressed. The crowds flock to him. The leaders don't. In fact, increasingly, they're not just not impressed. They are actively opposed. If you turn over just a page to chapter 12, we'll get there in a couple weeks, but look at chapter 12, verse 14. It says, But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. That opposition is the big theme here in this section as we consider the question, are you the one? He is facing increasing hostility and opposition. You'd think, you'd think that the coming of God's kingdom and Messiah would make, make everyone rejoice. Why wouldn't everyone be happy? Why wouldn't they jump on this bandwagon? But that isn't what happens. Many rejoice and follow him. They say, maybe this is the one that we've been waiting for. And many reject and oppose him. We'll consider why in a few minutes. But there's also a third category I want to think about this morning. It's a category most of us have probably been in at one point in time. It's the one we see here in Matthew 11 with John. Some people are supportive. Some people are hostile and opposed, but some people, maybe most of us at some point in time, just aren't sure. We're just not sure. Is he, is he really the one? That's where John is. You might expect him to be more sure. Turn back to Matthew chapter 3. Back to Matthew 3. Verse 1, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, this is he of who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. In Jerusalem and all Judea, all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. They were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. John is a crazy man. He is not normal. He lives in the wilderness. He's preaching a message of repentance. He wears crazy clothes, eats crazy food. He's not normal. But he's the one, the one the prophets predicted. Someone's going to, before God's king, before God's Messiah come, there's going to be a forerunner. Someone's going to go and prepare the way and proclaim, hey, now the time is coming. And this is John's the one. 
And the people come to him in droves to be baptized, repenting, confessing their sins. But John's not the one. Look down at verse 11 here in chapter 3. He says, I, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I. His sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he'll clear his threshing floor. He gathers wheat into the barn, but the chaff he'll burn with unquenchable fire. Verse 13, so then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. John knows. But Jesus answered, let it be so now, for thus it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So John consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. The heavens were opened to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. Behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. John is there for that. And now we get to chapter 11. Not much time has elapsed. Jesus' entire earthly ministry is only three years long. This isn't years and years later. Perhaps just a matter of months. And John sends his disciples to Jesus. John's in prison. And he's hearing the stories about Jesus. And he sends his disciples and says, Hey, Okay, are you the one, or should we look for another? And Jesus is outraged. No, not really. But, but we would understand it if he rolled his eyes and sighed and said, Oh, come on, John. You're supposed to be my number one guy. We're cousins. We're family. You know me. You were there at my baptism. You know what's up. We would understand if Jesus was like, what's going on? But Jesus isn't outraged at John's doubt. He is gentle with it. Jesus is just, he's just like that. Next week, we'll look later and to look down further in the chapter. We'll look at this verse next week. Familiar verse. Look at verse 28. Matthew 11. He says, Take my yoke on you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus doesn't hear about John's doubt, his wavering faith, and get upset. He's gentle. That's how he is. Why does John doubt? Why does anybody doubt? Sometimes it's just because life gets hard. Have you experienced that? I'm sure you have. Sometimes life's hard. John is out, as we read a moment ago, by the Jordan, baptizing people by the thousands. When we get to here, you know where he is? He's in prison. I don't think he knows it yet, but he's he's going to have his head cut off soon. I, I don't think that's how he envisioned I'm the forerunner of the Messiah playing out. He probably had a different plan. And now he's in prison. 
life's gotten hard, and his, his confidence has started to waver. Jesus, are you the one? Or should we look for another? We know there's one coming. We know God's going to send a Messiah, but are, are you the one? Life gets hard, and we think if Jesus really is the one, if he's really the one we've been looking for, why is the world still like this? Why is my life still like this? Life is hard, and our faith begins to waver. Another reason we doubt, we'll think about this more in a minute, is that Jesus doesn't come in the way we always expect. He doesn't come doing things the way we would do them. We'll think about that in a moment. So this is what Jesus tells John's disciples in verse 4. He says, go tell John what you see in here. Now, that's not actually what John wants. He's already heard stories about what's going on. That's not what he wants. What he wants is, tell me yes or no. We had, uh, we had some people coming over, uh, family coming over Friday night just to, for dinner and to hang out. And the kids all day. Someone's coming over tonight, but we're not telling you it's a surprise. And, and they just want to know, right? They just want to know who it is. Tell me who it is. And so we were sitting at breakfast praying, and I prayed for our day, and I said, Lord, when, when President Trump comes tonight, oh, um, and so all day, all day, who's coming tonight? I already told you the president's coming tonight. And so later in the afternoon, one of the kids, might have been John, it might have been you, I'm not sure, and uh, I said, how about, how about I just tell you the initials? Okay, DT. <laughs> Dad, Dad, we just want to know who is coming. John just wants to know. Just yes or no. Jesus, are, are you the one? And John, and Jesus says, tell John what you see in here. And then he begins to list miracles that he's been performing. Miracles that the Old Testament, particularly the the prophet Isaiah said, this is what the Messiah will do. So Jesus says, go tell John what you've seen. And he starts listing all these things, things that John would know that the Old Testament says the Messiah will come and do. He points them back to the prophecies and the promises. You see what he's doing here. He's sending John, I can't resist, he's sending him back to the book. He's sending him back to the book. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. There's a blessing for those who aren't offended, whose faith isn't tripped up, who don't stumble over Jesus, even when he doesn't do things the way we would want him to do them. When he doesn't do what we expect, Jesus could tell him, would that be enough for John? Jesus says, no, what God has said should be enough. He points him back to the book. This is what the Messiah will do. Tell John what you've seen and heard. Jesus is doing what the Messiah will do. Well, after John's disciples come asking about who Jesus really is, Jesus turns to the crowd, starting in verse 7, and begins to talk to them about who John is. It's been a remarkable moment. Look at verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? In other words, someone that's blown about by whatever fad or... 
You know, no, no, not that. John was nothing like that. John was his own man the whole time. Oh, so what then did you go out to see? A, a man dressed in soft clothing? He was wearing a camel's hair robe and eating locusts and wild honey. Jesus says, Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yeah. That's what you went out to see. Someone speaking for and representing God. That's what you went out to see. Jesus says, I'll tell you, more than a prophet. There were lots of prophets in the Old Testament. John's a prophet, but, but more than a prophet. He's the one of whom it's written, Behold, I'll send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, verse 11, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So, in other words, don't, don't think because John sent his disciples here that John's a bad guy. Don't, don't let your estimation of him be diminished. John's the greatest man yet to live, Jesus says. Not so much because of his own innate awesomeness. Like if you stand John the Baptist and Moses side by side, John is way cooler, way... That's not so much the point. But, but more so because of the glory of his God-given role. His job, his privilege, his glory is to, to proclaim the kingdom's here. God's one has come. He was the one chosen for that task. The one who goes before and prepares the way for the Messiah. But then Jesus says something remarkable. He goes on in verse 11 and says this. Yet, the one who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Not necessarily because the least person in Christ's kingdom is more moral or more spiritual or, or more gifted, but because something profound is changing. Before, we had prophets proclaiming the coming of a Messiah. And G John comes at the end of that line. The Messiah, he's to come. But now Jesus is here, and his disciples are ministering with him, and they will be witnesses of his resurrection, and they will proclaim his resurrection after he rises and returns to heaven. So on, that, that on this side of the cross and resurrection, every person can see what those prophets and godly men before Christ only dreamed about. You remember what Jesus will say, uh, those saints and prophets of old, they longed to see what you now see. They saw dimly, unclearly, with eyes of faith. Jesus says, but, but now those in the kingdom of heaven, starting with his disciples around him, they see me. They'll see me die. They'll see me resurrected and their testimony will go forward so that that every person who turns to Christ after this sees much more clearly has the privilege of proclaiming much more confidently that God has sent the one and he's come in time in space in history he's lived he's died he's risen again he's borne the sins of all who would trust in him it's a great and remarkable privilege the kingdom moves forward against opposition verse 12 from the days of john the baptist until now the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence the violent take it by force 
the kingdom and the message and the messengers will face difficulty and struggle and opposition. But all the law, verse 13, and the prophets prophesied until John. And he says, if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. At the end of Malachi, the last pass, the last chapter in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5, we see this prophecy. If you went back to the beginning of Matthew, turn back a page or two, Malachi 4, it ends, the Old Testament ends with, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he'll turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. There's how the Old Testament ends the promise of an Elijah to come. And Jesus says, if you can accept it, John is the Elijah to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Don't miss this. If the messenger and the forerunner has come, it means the Messiah has come too. Jesus is gentle with our doubts. And we have less excuse than John did. We have the testimony, the eyewitness testimony of, of the disciples, those apostles who, who witnessed Jesus risen again. Life gets hard, but we can trust Jesus is the one we've been waiting for, the one that we need. But there's one more reason, as we said earlier, that, that people doubt. The first section here in Matthew 11 was about who Jesus is. The second is about who John is. But now in verse 16, Jesus turns to the crowd and says, in effect, what about you? Who are you and what are you about? He says in verse 16, to what shall I compare this generation? And Jesus compares them to children. He says it's like, it's like children. You, you guys are like children sitting in the marketplaces calling to their playmates. Now, they didn't have playgrounds in the ancient Middle East. The marketplaces where people gathered, bought and sold, met, kids played. He says it's like kids gathered together in the marketplace calling to their playmates, we played for the flute for you and you didn't dance. Hey, we were playing a song. You were supposed to rejoice and dance. This was supposed to be fun. We played and you didn't dance. Or, conversely, we sang a dirge like you would at a funeral. But you didn't mourn. You're like children making demands of each other and not getting what you want. For, verse 18, John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. That guy's crazy. He's got a demon. The Son of Man came, verse 19, doing the opposite eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. John's too crazy for him. He's got a demon. Jesus parties all the time. They say, well, look at that guy. It doesn't matter if you go this way or that. Either way is, we wanted you to do this and be like this, and you won't. Jesus says, you're like children because you think that the one God has sent has to do what you want him to do and be the way you want him to be. You, you don't want to submit to him. You want to control him. We doubt because Jesus isn't exactly who we want him to be. In truth, we want to call the shots. We want him to serve our interests and our purposes. We want him at our beck and call. We want him to serve us, answer to our demands so what happens often is 
we begin to look elsewhere. I have needs. The world's a mess. My life's out of order. Is he the one? I don't know. I was, if he was the one, things would already be different. Right? So we look elsewhere. We begin to look for someone else. Maybe if I had that person in my life. Maybe if I was married to that person. Maybe that's what I need and what I'm looking for. Maybe if my kids would just act in these ways, then life would be what I want and need. Maybe that's what I'm looking for. Maybe if I just had the right friends or different friends or better friends. Maybe if my family wasn't so crazy, right? That's what I'm looking for, a better family. Or maybe it's not someone else we look for. It's something else. If I just had more money, if I just had more exciting experiences, if I just had better possessions, if I just had more esteem from people. And so we go looking hard for someone or something else, saying that's the kind of salvation I need. John asked Jesus, are you, are you the one? Are you the one? And even if we haven't articulated it that way, that question is on our heart all the time too. Jesus, are you really the one? Are you really the one that's going to make things right in my life? Are you really the one that's going to fix the problems in my world, in my relationships, in my job, in my family? Are you, are you really the one that I'm looking for? And we get distracted, we get dragged away, and we think, no, maybe that person, maybe that relationship, maybe that experience, maybe that possession, maybe that kind of life, maybe that's what I need. And God's word brings us back relentlessly to Jesus. You know, he, he's the one. He's the one. He's the one that we need. See, in some ways, our experience is very different than Jesus' disciples and listeners here. They're listening here, and they don't yet know about the cross and the resurrection. Even when he tries to explain it to them, they don't understand. We, we do. We have that testimony, and we have that witness. We do know. But you know what? We're waiting, too. We're waiting, too. Because that same Jesus is coming again. And he's going to make everything that's wrong right. He's going to fix what's broken. He's going to restore what's lost. We are still waiting. He is surely coming. He will surely save and redeem and restore. And the challenge for you and I that we'll think about, especially over these next seven weeks as we work through these chapters is, are we going to keep waiting and looking to him are we going to get distracted and dragged away thinking, no, salvation, joy, happiness, my future, that's somewhere else. What we need is God's word to draw us back again and again. Jesus is the one that we're looking for. Father, I pray you'd help us. We are easily distracted. We easily doubt. And I am thankful that you are gentle and patient with us in our weakness. You understand. You know what it's like for us. And so I pray for myself and, and for every person here, much grace. We will go running and chasing after a million other things, thinking, oh, that's the one, that's the thing. 
that will make me whole, make me happy, give me hope. And so we need grace. We need the powerful work of your spirit through your word to encourage and convince and strengthen us to go hard after Jesus because he's the one. He is the one that we're looking for. Oh, I pray that you would make Springview Community Church a community of family of people exhorting and encouraging one another that we might together look hard, strive hard, go hard after Jesus, the one we need. Oh, we're, we're grateful. Grateful for your love and care and concern for us, for the salvation that you have given us in Christ. Keep us and strengthen us. Hold us close when, when we doubt and waver. Bring us back again and again to you. I pray in Jesus' name.